Welcome back. I'm Diane Planetin with The Flourish Show, and you are here because you want to live a more inspired life. And we do so by working on our personal development. So we can be strong role models for those we love and mentor. Today is chapter 26 in my Queen's University journey through Psych 100. It's an intense course. So I got my little nest. I got my notepad. I got my index cards. I got the book. It's printed. And I've got you because you deserve to pass this course. You deserve to enrich your lives and enrich your knowledge. And this week's topic is the state of consciousness. This is an open courseware material. So there's no copyright infringement in case you're wondering. <laughs> so let's get started. So states of consciousness. No matter what you're doing, solving homework, playing a video game, simply picking out a shirt, all of your actions and decisions relate to your consciousness. But as frequently as we use it, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, what really is consciousness? In this module, we discuss the different levels of consciousness and how they can affect your behavior in a variety of situations. As well, we explore the role of consciousness in other altered states like hypnosis and sleep. As usual, we will focus on the learning objectives as outlined, define consciousness and distinguish between high and low conscious states. So keep these things in your mind. Explain the relationship between consciousness and bias. And finally, understand the difference between popular portrayals of hypnosis and how it is currently used therapeutically. Hmm, I'm excited. I hope you are too. So an introduction to this chapter. Have you ever had a fellow motorist stopped beside you at a red light, singing his brains out or picking his nose or otherwise behaving in ways he might not normally do in public? There's something about being alone in a car that encourages people to zone out and forget that others can see them. Although these little lapses of attention are amusing for the rest of us, they are also instructive when it comes to the topic of consciousness. Consciousness is a term meant to indicate awareness. We talked about awareness in the last chapter. So consciousness is awareness of ourselves and our environment. It includes awareness of the self, of bodily sensations, of thoughts, of the environment. In English, we use the opposite word, unconscious, to indicate senselessness or a barrier to awareness, as in the case of Teresa fell off the ladder and hit her head, knocking herself unconscious. And yet, Psychological theory and research suggests that consciousness and unconsciousness are more complicated than falling off a ladder. That is, consciousness is more than just being on or off. For instance, Sigmund Freud, a psychological theorist, understood that even while we are awake, many things lay outside the realm of our conscious awareness, like being in the car and forgetting the rest of the world can see into your windows. In response to this notion, Freud introduced the concept of the subconscious and proposed that some of our memories and even our basic motivations are not always accessible to our conscious minds. Upon reflection, it is easy to see how slippery a topic consciousness is. For example, are people conscious when they are daydreaming? What about when they're drunk? 
In this module, we will describe several levels of consciousness and then discuss altered states of consciousness, such as hypnosis and sleep. Yeah, this is gonna be exciting. So we begin with the levels of awareness. In 1957, a marketing researcher inserted the word eat popcorn onto one frame of a film being shown all across the United States. And although that frame was only projected onto the movie screen for 1 24th of a second, a speed too fast to be perceived by a conscious awareness, the researcher reported an increase in popcorn sales by nearly 60%. Almost immediately, all forms of subliminal messaging were regulated in the US and banned in such countries such as Australia and the United Kingdom. Even though it was later shown that the researcher had made up the data, <laughs> he hadn't even inserted the words into the film. This fear about influences on our subconscious persists. At its heart, the issue pits various levels of awareness against one another. On the one hand, we have the low awareness of a subtle, even subliminal influences. On the other hand, there is you, the conscious thinking, feeling you, which includes all that you are currently aware of, even reading this sentence. However, when we consider these different levels of awareness separately, we can better understand how they operate. Then there's low awareness. You are constantly receiving and evaluating sensory information, although each moment has too many sights, smells, and sounds for them to be consciously considered. Our brains are nonetheless processing all that information. For example, have you ever been to a party overwhelmed by all the people in conversation when out of nowhere you hear your name called? Even though you have no idea what else the person is saying, you are somehow conscious of your name. So even though you may not be aware of various stimuli uh, in your environment, your brain is paying closer attention than you think. Similar to reflex, like jumping when you're startled, some cues or significant sensory information will automatically elicit a response from us, even though we never consciously perceive it. For example, omen and sores measured subtle variations in sweating of participants with fears of snakes. The researchers flashed pictures of different objects, mushrooms, flowers, and most importantly, snakes, on a screen in front of them but did so at speeds that left the participants clueless as to what he or she had actually seen. However, when the snake pictures were flashed, these participants started sweating more, sign of fear, even though they had no idea what they had just viewed. Although our brains perceive some stimuli without our conscious awareness, do they really affect our subsequent thoughts and behaviors? In a landmark study, they had participants solve a word search puzzle where the answers pertain to the words about the elderly. For example, old or grandma, or something random like notebook or tomato. Afterward, the researchers secretly measured how fast the participants walked down the hall exiting the experiment. And though none of the participants were aware of the theme to the answers, those who had solved a puzzle with elderly words versus those with other types of words walked more slowly down the hallway. Hmm, that's fascinating. Could that not really be considered subliminal? I don't know. We'll think about that. 
priming studies and replication. If the results of priming studies sounds too fantastic to believe, you are not alone in your skepticism. Recently, many studies in psychology, including many priming studies, have come under scrutiny because they do not replicate. This means that when latter researchers have attempted to recreate certain studies, they have not always gotten the same or even similar results. Non-replication does not suggest that the original researchers faked the results, but there may have been flaws in the original sampling or research methods. Fortunately, researchers are very aware of the problem of non-replication and have taken steps to address the issue. Yes, so how would you replicate that old grandma study? That's what they're talking about. This effect is called priming. Priming is the activation of certain thoughts or feelings that make them easier to think of and act upon. So the effect is called priming, has been found in a number of other studies. For example, priming people by having them drink from a warm glass versus a cold one resulted in behaving more warmly towards others. Although all of these influences occur beneath one's conscious awareness, they still have a significant effect on one's subsequent thoughts and behaviors. In the last two decades, researchers have made advances in studying aspects of psychology that exist beyond conscious awareness. As you can understand, it is difficult to use self-reports and surveys to ask people about motives or beliefs that they themselves might not even be aware of. One way of sidestepping this difficulty can be found in the Implicit Association Test, or IAT. So the Implicit Association Test is a computer reaction time test that measures the person's automatic associations with concepts. For instance, the IAT could be used to measure how quickly a person makes positive or negative evaluations of members of various ethnic groups. This research method uses computers to assess people's reaction times to various stimuli and is very difficult test to fake because it records automatic reactions that occur in milliseconds. So for instance, to shed light on a deeply held biases, the IAT might present photographs of Caucasian faces and Asian faces while asking research participants to click buttons either indicating either good or bad as quickly as possible. Even if the participant clicks good for every face shown, the IAT can still pick up tiny delays in responding. Delays are associated with more mental effort needed to process information. When information is processed quickly, as in the example of white faces being judged as good, it can be contrasted with slower processing, as in the example of Asian faces being judged as good. The difference in processing speed is reflective of bias. In this regard, the IAT has been used for investigating stereotypes as well as self-esteem. This method can help uncover non-conscious biases as well as, though, as well as those we are motivated to suppress. Hmm, that's actually quite fascinating. Next is high awareness. Just because we may be influenced by these invisible factors, it doesn't mean that we are helplessly controlled by them. 
the other side of the awareness continuum known as high awareness. This includes effortful attention and careful decision-making. For example, when you listen to a funny story on a date or consider which class schedule would be preferable or complete a complex math problem, you are engaging a state of consciousness that allows you to be highly aware of and focused on particular details in your environment. Mindfulness, a process that reflects a non-judgmental yet attentive mental state, is a state of higher consciousness that includes an awareness of the thoughts passing through one's head. For example, have you ever snapped at someone in frustration only to take a moment and reflect on why you responded so aggressively? This more effortful consideration of your thoughts could be described as an expansion of your conscious awareness as you take the time to consider the possible influences on your thoughts. Research has shown that when you engage in this more deliberate consideration, you are less persuaded by irrelevant yet biasing influences, like the presence of a celebrity in an advertisement. Higher awareness is also associated with recognizing when you're using a stereotype rather than fairly evaluating another person. They also talk about meditation, which has been practiced for centuries in religious contexts. In the past 50 years, it's become increasingly popular as a secular practice. Scientific studies have linked meditation to lower stress and higher well-being. Humans alternate between low and high thinking states. That is, we shift between focused attention and a less attentive default state, and we have neural networks for both. Interestingly, the less we paying attention, the more likely we are to be influenced by non-conscious stimuli. Although these subtle influences may affect us, we can use our higher conscious awareness to protect against external influences. It's known as the flexible correction module. People who are aware that their thoughts or behaviors are being influenced by an undue outside source can correct their attitude against the bias. So flexible correction model. The ability for people to correct or change their beliefs and evaluations if they believe these judgments have been biased. For example, if someone realizes that they only thought their day was great because it was sunny, they may revise their evaluation of the day to account for this biasing influence of the weather. For example, you might be aware that you are influenced by mention of specific political parties. If you were motivated to consider a government policy, you can take your own biases into account to attempt to consider the policy in a fair way on its own merits rather than being attached to a certain party. To help make the relationship between lower and higher consciousness clearer, imagine the brain is like a journey down a river. In low awareness, you simply float on a small rubber raft and let the currents push you. It's not very difficult to just drift along, but you also don't have total control. Higher states of consciousness are more like traveling in a canoe. In this scenario, you have a paddle and can steer, but it requires more effort. This analogy applies to many states of consciousness, but not all. What about other states such as like sleeping, daydreaming, or hypnosis? How are these related 
to our conscious awareness. I like that. There's a table on this page, if you're listening to this versus watching it on YouTube, that shows that uh, under the costs, the low awareness is influenced by subtle factors and high awareness uses mental effort. And then the benefit, it saves mental effort on the low awareness and can come over some biases on the high awareness. Sometimes the visual helps understanding different things a little bit better. Now we're moving on to other states of consciousness. Yay, hypnosis. I find it fascinating, to be honest. If you've ever watched a stage hypnotist perform, it may paint a misleading portrait of this state of consciousness. The hypnotized people on stage, for example, appear to be in a state of similar to sleep. However, as the hypnotist continues with the show, you would recognize some profound differences between sleep and hypnosis. Namely, when you're asleep, hearing the word strawberry doesn't make you flap your arms like a chicken. In stage performances, the hypnotized participants appear to be highly suggestible to the point that they are seemingly under the hypnotist's control. Such performances are entertaining, but have a way of sensationalizing the true nature of hypnotic states. Hypnosis is an actual documented phenomenon, one that has been studied and baited for over 200 years. Franz Mesmer is often credited as among the first people to discover hypnosis, which he used to treat members of elite society who were experiencing psychological distress. It is from Mesmer's name that we get the English word mesmerize, meaning to entrance or transfix a person's attention. Mesmer attributed the effect of hypnosis to animal magnetism a supposed universal force similar to gravity that operates through all human bodies. Even at the time, such an account of hypnosis was not scientifically supported, and Mesmer himself was frequently the center of controversy. Over the years, researchers have proposed that hypnosis is a mental state characterized by reduced peripheral awareness and increased focus on singular stimuli, which results in an enhanced susceptibility to suggestion. For example, the hypnotist will usually induce hypnosis by getting the person to pay attention only to the hypnotist's voice. As the individual focuses more and more on that, he or she begins to forget the context of the setting and responds to the hypnotist's suggestions as if they were their own. Some people are naturally more suggestible and therefore more hypnotizable than are others. And this is especially true for those who score high in empathy. One common trick of stage hypnotists is to discard volunteers who are less suggestible than others. In that particular area, the, we're gonna have a definition of hypnosis. So hypnosis, the state of consciousness whereby a person is highly responsive to the suggestions of another. This state usually involves a disassociation with one's environment and an intense focus on a single stimulus, which is usually accompanied by a sense of relaxation. Mm, I like that. Next is dissociation. Dissociation, the heightened focus on one stimulus or thought such that many other things around you are ignored. A disconnect between one's awareness of their environment 
and the one object the person is focusing on. So dissociation is a separation of one's awareness from everything beside, besides what one is centrally focused on. For example, if you've ever been daydreaming in class, you were likely so caught up in the fantasy that you didn't hear a word the teacher said. <laughs> During hypnosis, this disassociation becomes even more extreme. That is, a person concentrates so much on the words of the hypnotist that he or she loses perspective of the rest of the world around them. As a consequence of disassociation, a person is less effortful and less self-conscious in consideration of his or her own thoughts and behaviors. Similar to low awareness states where one often acts on the first thought that comes to mind, so too in hypnosis does the individual simply follow the first thought that comes to mind. Still, just because one is more susceptible to suggestion under hypnosis, it doesn't mean he or she will do anything that's ordered. To be hypnotized, you must first want to be hypnotized. You cannot be hypnotized against your will. And once you are hypnotized, you won't do anything you wouldn't also do while in a more natural state of consciousness. Today, hypnotherapy is still used in a variety of formats and has evolved from Mesmer's earlier tinkering with the concept. Modern hypnotherapy often uses a combination of relaxation, suggestion, motivation, and expectancies to create a desired mental or behavioral state. Although there is mixed evidence on whether hypnotherapy can help with addiction reduction, for example, quitting smoking, there is some evidence that it can be successful in treating sufferers of acute and chronic pain. For example, one study examined the treatment of burn patients with either hypnotherapy, pseudo-hypnosis, a placebo condition, or no treatment at all. Afterward, even though people in the placebo condition experienced a 16% decrease in pain, those in the actual hypnosis condition experienced a reduction of nearly 50%. Thus, even though hypnosis may be sensationalized for television and movies, its ability to disassociate a person from their environment or their pain in conjunction with increased suggestibility to a clinician's recommendation is a documented practice with actual medical benefits. Now, similar to hypnotic states, trance states also involve a dissociation of self. However, people in a trance state are said to have less voluntary control over the behaviors and actions. Trance states often occur in religious ceremonies where the person believes he or she is possessed by an other otherworldly being or force. While in trance, people report antidotal accounts of a higher consciousness or communion with a greater power. However, the body of research investigating this phenomenon tends to reject the claim that these experiences constitute an altered state of consciousness. Most researchers today describe both hypnosis and trance states as subjective alterations of consciousness, not an actually distinct or evolved form. Just like you feel different when you're in a state of deep relaxation, so too are hypnotic and trance states simply shifts from the standard conscious experience. Researchers contend that even though both hypnotic and trance states appear and feel wildly different than the normal human experience, 
it can be explained by standard socio-cognitive factors like imagination, expectation, and the interpretation of the situation. Next is sleep. You may have experienced the sensation as you were falling asleep of falling and then found yourself physically jerking forward and grabbing out as if you were really falling. Sleep is a unique state of consciousness. It lacks full awareness, but the brain is still active. People generally follow a biological clock that impacts when they naturally become drowsy, when they fall asleep, and the time they naturally awaken. The hormone melatonin increases at night and is associated with becoming sleepy. Your natural daily rhythm or circadian rhythm can be influenced by the amount of daylight to which you are exposed, as well as your work and activity schedule. Changing your location, such as flying from Canada to England, can disrupt your natural sleep rhythms. And we call this jet lag. You can overcome jet lag by synchronizing yourself to the local schedule, by exposing yourself to daylight and forcing yourself to stay awake, even though you are naturally sleepy. Interestingly, sleep itself is more than shutting off for the night or for a nap. Instead of turning off like a light with a flick of a switch, your shift in consciousness is reflected in your brain's electrical activity. While you're awake and alert, your brain activity is marked by beta waves. Beta waves are characterized by being high in frequency but low in intensity. In addition, they are the most inconsistent brain wave, and this reflects the wide variation in sensory input that a person processes during the day. As you begin to relax these changes to alpha waves, these alpha waves reflect brain activity that is less frequent, more consistent, and more intense. As you slip into actual sleep, your transition through many stages. Scholars differ on how they characterize sleep stages with some experts arguing that there are four distinct stages, while others recognize five. But they all distinguish between those that include rapid eye movement, REM, and those that are non-rapid eye movement, NREM. In addition, each stage is typically characterized by its own unique pattern of brain activity. Stage one called NREM or N1, is the falling asleep stage and is marked by theta waves. Stage two, NREM2 or N2, is considered a light sleep. Here, there are occasional sleep spindles or very high intensity brain waves. These are thought to be associated with the processing of memories. N2 makes up about 55% of all sleep. Stage three, NREM or N3, makes up between 20 to 25% of all sleep and is marked by greater muscle relaxation and the appearance of delta waves. And finally, REM, sleep is marked by rapid eye movement. Interestingly, this stage in terms of brain activity is similar to wakefulness. That is, the brain waves occur less intensely than in other stages of sleep. REM sleep accounts for about 20% of all sleep and is associated with dreaming. That's my favorite part of <laughs> sleeping time. If you're watching this on YouTube, um, there's a nice chart here that shows the neural activity at these different stages we just 
talked about. And I, I find it really quite fascinating when you can actually measure each one in the changes in brain activity or brain lives across the different stages of consciousness and from being awake and throughout various stages of sleep. So if you're listening to this, take a look at that because that's really quite quite a good visual. Dreams are arguably the most interesting aspect of sleep. Oh, hooray, I'm not the only one. <laughs> Throughout history, dreams have been given special importance because of their unique, almost mystical nature. They have been thought to be predictions of the future, hints of hidden aspects of the self, important lessons about how to live life, or opportunities to engage in impossible deeds like flying. There are several competing theories of why humans dream. One is that it is our non-conscious attempt to make sense of our daily experiences and learning. Another popularized by Freud is that dreams represent taboo or troublesome wishes or desires. Regardless of the specific reason, we know a few facts about dreams. All humans dream. We dream at every stage of sleep. But dreams during REM sleep are especially vivid. One underexplored area of dream research is the possible social functions of dreams. We often share our dreams with others and use them for entertainment value. Sleep serves many functions, one of which is to give us a period of mental and physical restoration. Children generally need more sleep than adults since they are developing. It is so vital, in fact, that a lack of sleep is associated with a wide range of problems. People who do not receive adequate sleep are more irritable, have slower reaction time, have more difficulty sustaining attention, and make poorer decisions. Interestingly, this is an issue relevant to the lives of college students. In one highly cited study, researchers found that one in five students took more than 30 minutes to fall asleep at night. One in 10 occasionally took sleep medications, and more than half reported being mostly tired in the mornings. Next is psychoactive drugs. Well, this is getting really interesting because it talks about how Albert Hoffman, a Swiss chemist working at a pharmaceutical company, accidentally ingested a newly synthesized drug. The drug, LSD, turned out to be a powerful hallucinogen. Hoffman went home and later reported the effects of the drugs, describing them as seeing the world through a warped mirror and experienced visions of extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic plays of color. Hoffman had discovered what members of many traditional cultures around the world already knew. There are substances that, when ingested, can have a powerful effect on perception and on consciousness. Drugs operate on human physiology in a variety of ways, and researchers and medical doctors tend to classify drugs according to their effects. I'm going to briefly cover three categories of drugs, hallucinogens, depressants, and stimulants. So hallucinogens, which we already heard about the LSD discovery, <laughs> it is possible that hallucinogens are the substance that have historically been used the most widely. Traditional societies have used plant-based hallucinogens such as POT, ebene, and mushrooms in a wide range of religious ceremonies. 
Hallucinogens are substances that alter a person's perception often by creating visions or hallucinations that are not real. There are a wide range of hallucinogens and many are used as recreational substances in industrialized societies. Common examples include marijuana, LSD, and MDMA, also known as ecstasy. Marijuana is the dried flowers of the hemp plant and is often smoked to produce euphoria. The active ingredient in marijuana is called THC and can produce distortions in the perception of time, can create a sense of rambling, unrelated thoughts, and is sometimes associated with increased hunger or excessive laughter. The use and possession of marijuana is illegal in most places, but this appears to be a trend that is changing. Yes, several countries have recently legalized marijuana. This may be due in part to changing public attitudes or to the fact that marijuana is increasingly used for medical purposes, such as the management of nausea or treating glaucoma. Next is depressants. Depressants are substances that, as their name suggests, slow down the body's physiology and mental process. Alcohol is the most widely used depressant. Alcohol effects include the reduction of inhibition, meaning that intoxicated people are more likely to act in ways they would otherwise be reluctant to do. Alcohol's psychological effects are the result of it increasing the neurotransmitter GABA. There are also physical effects, such as loss of balance and coordination, and these stem from the way that alcohol interferes with the coordination of the visual and motor systems of the brain. Despite the fact that alcohol is so widely accepted in many cultures, it is also associated with a variety of dangers. First, alcohol is toxic, meaning that it acts like a poison because it is possible to drink more alcohol than the body can effectively remove from the bloodstream. When a person's blood alcohol content reaches 0.3 to 0.4%, there is a serious risk of death. Second, the lack of judgment and physical control associated with alcohol is associated with more risk-taking behavior or dangerous behavior, such as drunk driving. Finally, alcohol is addictive, and heavy drinkers often experience significant interference with their ability to work effectively or in their close relationships. Other common depressants include opiates, also called narcotics, which are substances synthesized from the poppy flower. Opiates stimulate endorphin production in the brain, and because of this, they are often used as painkillers by medical professionals. Unfortunately, because opiates such as oxycodone so reliable produces euphoria, they are increasingly used illegally as recreational substances, opiates are highly addictive. And the next is stimulants. Oh, wow. Caffeine is the most widely consumed stimulant in the world. Be honest, how many cups of coffee, tea, or energy drinks have you had today? <laughs> well, I'm getting better. I've only had two cups of coffee today. All right, let's talk about stimulants. Stimulants are substances that speed up the body's physiological and mental processes. Two commonly used stimulants are caffeine, the drug found in coffee and tea, and nicotine, the active drug in cigarettes and other tobacco products. 
These substances are both legal and relatively inexpensive, leading to their widespread use. Many people are attracted to stimulants because they feel more alert when under the influence of these drugs. As with any drug, there are health risks associated with consumption. For example, excessive consumption of these types of stimulants can result in anxiety, headaches, and insomnia. insomnia. Similarly, smoking cigarettes, the most common means of ingesting nicotine, is associated with higher risks of cancer. For instance, among heavy smokers, 90% of lung cancer is directly attributed to smoking. There are other stimulants, such as cocaine and methamphetamine, also known as crystal meth or ice, that are illegal substances that are commonly used. These substances act by blocking reuptake of dopamine in the brain. This means that the brain does not naturally clear out the dopamine and that it builds up in the synapse, creating euphoria and alertness. As the effects wear off, it stimulates strong cravings for more of the drug because of these powerful stimulants are highly addictive. There you go, we're all seeking euphoria, right? That's, that's how addiction happens. We finalize the chapter in conclusion to say, when you are thinking about your daily life, it is easy to get lulled into the belief that there is one setting for your conscious thought. That is, you likely believe that you hold the same opinions, values, and memories across the day and throughout the week, but you are like a dimmer switch on a light that can be turned from full darkness increasingly on up to full brightness. This switch is consciousness. At your brightest setting, you are fully alert and aware. At a dimmer setting, you are daydreaming. And sleep, or being knocked unconscious, represent dimmer settings still. The degree to which you are in high, medium, or low states of conscious awareness affects how susceptible you are to persuasion, how clear your judgment is, and how much detail you can recall. Understanding levels of awareness, then, is at the heart of understanding how we learn, decide, remember, and many other vital psychological processes. Well, that was fascinating. I really enjoyed that chapter. So as we continue our journey, make sure you hit the subscribe button. You don't want to miss the next episode. Well, actually, the next episode is going to be a bit more about the terminology from this chapter. We'll see you soon.